following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, again, we thank you for this morning and just thank you for the Lord, command you've given us to remember the death, resurrection of your Son, to remember his sacrifice in communion. And Lord, it's so easy at times for our hearts to become uh, cold to that or just uh, not sensitive or, or as grateful as we should be. And I thank you, Lord, each month that we have this time set aside to be reminded. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, on our behalf, without which we would have no purpose not only for being here but for living so thankful i pray now god that by your spirit you would open up your word and enlighten us and show us changes you want us to make in our lives in our thinking and in our doing and in jesus name we pray amen well it's just over a week ago um i found myself watching a video from the 9-11 attacks um, I hadn't seen any in quite a while, and I was surprised at just the emotions and the response as I was seeing some of those things um, that I know it was 12 years ago, but it doesn't seem that long ago. And one of the things that I remember from uh, the days following the 9-11 attacks was uh, there was a memorial wall that was set up near the Twin Towers. I don't know if any of you remember this. They had a, a wall there with uh, pictures and names of those who were still missing, and um, there was a woman standing at the wall, and she had been uh, crying, and the reporter had come up and asked her if she was uh, offering prayers for those who were missing. And I'll never forget her response, because she looked at the reporter, and in anguish she said, I don't know who to pray to. She said, I, I can't believe in a God who would let something like this happen. Do you know who I should pray to? You know, there have been many tragedies, not only 9-11, but before and after, not only here in this country, but all over the world. I mean, just this uh, past Monday, a man shot and killed a dozen people in a naval shipyard in Washington. We've seen violence and wars and earthquakes, floods, starvation, cancer, rape, murder, abortion. Every day these things happen all over the world, and it does cause many to ask, where, where is God? Does He care? Does this matter to him? Do we matter to him? Remember a number of years ago when I was in college, the English band Depeche Mode came up with a song called Blasphemous Rumors. And in the song, they described a teenage girl who tried to commit suicide but was unsuccessful. And then a couple of years later, uh, they, they write in the song that she found new life in Jesus Christ, only then to be hit by a car and killed, leaving her mother heartbroken. And then they sang this chorus a number of times. I don't want to start any blasphemous rumors, but I think God's got a sick sense of humor. And when I die, I expect to find him laughing. Indeed, a blasphemous view of God, but they are not alone in that view. As many look at the tragedies in life and think, you know, life doesn't make any sense. Does God really see? Does he really care? Does he laugh in regards to our tragedies? Is he ignoring us in our pain? And our suffering, have we been duped to believe God is love? Perhaps you've struggled at times with questions like these. Perhaps they're on your heart right now. 
And so today we're going to look at the book of Jonah because Jonah has answers to these questions. We're going to be looking in Jonah 4 because, again, Jonah is more than a story about a man and a fish. And as we've seen thus far in this prophecy, it's a unique book because really it's not much of a prophecy. It's more of a narrative, isn't it? In fact, very little prophecy is given. Just one statement in chapter 3, verse 4. And this narrative has had a number of unexpected twists and turns. A a prophet who refuses to prophesy. A group of pagan sailors who become worshipers of God. A man surviving in a fish for three days and three nights. An entire city of unbelieving, idol-worshiping Gentiles turning to God in faith. An unparalleled revival in human history. All of these things happening through the course of of this book. And as we've journeyed through this book together, there are many places where it could have uh, cleanly ended. Kind of like those movies now, you get on DVD, multiple endings. You know, really, Jonah is one of those. Because if it had ended at chapter 1, it would have been then a story about what the consequences of disobedience, right? Of a prophet who disobeyed God and ran off and then was thrown into the sea. And even in that, God was able to use that disobedience for good. Or the story could have ended at chapter 2. Would have been a wonderful story then of the restoration of a sinning prophet and how God had taken this one who rebelled and and saved him through this fish and and then this prayer of of thanksgiving and gratitude towards God's salvation. That would have been a good place to end. Or especially in chapter 3, that would be a wonderful ending, right? Really the God of second chances who gave Jonah a second chance as well as Nineveh and that he came to Nineveh and Nineveh had this mass revival. You know, but as we look in our Bibles, we see there's more given after chapter 3, isn't there? This book isn't done. The story's not over. And that's really how it should be, because if we think back to the very beginning of this story, there should be a question in the back of our minds nagging us. And that question is, again, I know many of us are familiar with the story, so we know the answer, but pretend you didn't. Pretend you're moving through this account you didn't have chapter 4. And this question should be in the back of your mind. Why in the world did Jonah not respond to God in obedience? Because remember, the book began with God telling Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, and proclaim against it, for their wickedness has risen up or has come to me. And then what did Jonah do? He he arose, right? But he went the other direction, right? He took off. He was getting out of town. And the question is, why did he do that? Was he afraid? Did he think he would be killed or persecuted? Did he not want to take that long journey because he didn't think there'd be any good chance of success? Was uh, Jonah uh, not wanting to go because he thought that it would just be a waste of time, that he would be rejected? Or maybe, you know, he just was done in ministry. You know, this is hard having the life of a prophet. I think I'm going to go do something else. You know, all these are possibilities. We don't know yet. Till we get to chapter 4. But whatever the issue was, Jonah was felt so strongly about it, he was willing to blatantly disobey God, and then not only that, take a much longer, more dangerous journey to get away. Well, the answer to why Jonah did it is found in chapter 4. So please stand with me as I read from God's Word. And we're, Actually, we'll begin in chapter 3, verse 10, to get some context. Jonah 3.10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Yahweh, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, Yahweh, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. Yahweh said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Well, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. It came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then Yahweh said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow and which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? Thank you. You may be seated. Well, here in chapter 4, the author chooses to let us in on a conversation that actually took place at the beginning. But he didn't tell us about it until now. Here we learn that Jonah refused to go, and he told God why. Why is it? Why did he refuse to go? Simply put, what was the reason? What did he not want to see? He didn't want to see the Ninevites uh, be delivered, did he? He wanted them to be judged. Again, another shock. For what prophet in the world would not want his hearers to respond? And it wasn't just that Jonah was perturbed or upset or or frustrated. He was irate. The word there for anger is this idea of burning anger. In fact, it was used back in 3.9. It's a, a term we'll often use when somebody's really mad. We'll say, boy, that guy was hot. It's the same idea here. Jonah was hot. He was mad. But what was he mad about? What was the it here in verse 1 that he was greatly displeased with? Well, to put it bluntly, Jonah wanted these pagan Gentiles to burn in hell. When God relented from the judgment upon the Ninevites because of their repentance, that is what got to Jonah. Knowing how much he hated these Gentiles, though, as we now learn, you would think, well, Back at the beginning, when God said, go and proclaim a message of judgment, that Jonah would have wanted to do that, right? Yes, I'm going to go tell him what God's going to do. Yes. But he didn't do that. And the question is, why? You know why? Because Jonah realized God wasn't sending him to give a message of judgment, but a message of warning. He realized that what God was doing here, because he says, I I knew what you were going to do. I know who you are. I know your character. I know you're a gracious God, a compassionate God. I know you're a God of second chances, and I don't want those wicked sinners to have a second chance. So I'm not going. In fact, I'm going to run off. I'm not going to be a prophet anymore. 
In Jonah's complaint here, we really see the theme of the entire book. Because here in 4.2, as he articulates the character of God, he's really providing for us the foundational theme of this whole story. Because that's how the book ends, doesn't it? God drawing attention to his compassion. He said, should I not show compassion upon Nineveh, the great city? And we find here that this book of Jonah was not written for Jonah's sake. It was written for ours. For God wants us to see through the experiences of this prophet. He wants us to see two things. One is to see the compassion of God. And secondly, to show the compassion of God. We'll look more at Jonah's response um, on our second point a little bit later and how it applies to us. But, but first, we need to again recognize the theme of this chapter is the compassion of God. Again, it, it stated clearly in verse 2, and then also how the chapter ends is focused on God's grace, His compassion, His mercy. Again, you see, Jonah was written not to highlight the prophet Jonah. It was written to highlight God and especially God's kindness and compassion. Jonah himself, again, declares this theme in Jonah 4.2 and describing him as compassionate, as gracious, as full of loving kindness. And those of us who know our Old Testaments a little bit should know he was quoting from a truth that God gave to Moses way back in Exodus 34. In fact, let's turn there for a minute. I want you to see this account. This happens right after the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. And God, in response to that, in chapter 33, says, You know what, Moses? You're going to go ahead onto the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you because I'm going to wipe these people out. So I'm going to send an angel to go with you. And Moses said, no, Lord, if you don't go, I don't want to go. You have to go with us. And God agreed, said he would go. And it is that moment that that Moses, I think, was overcoming. This is a man who had a relationship with God, very unique one, where God even says, I'd speak with him as a person-to-person, as face-to-face. And and here was a moment where Moses said, I've tasted of you, God, and who you are. I want more. Show me your glory. Show me your majesty, your your splendor. Give me a, a greater picture of you, a greater understanding of you, a more intimate relationship with you. And so God, interestingly enough, in chapter 33, says... Okay, I will show you my glory. I will make all my goodness pass by, and, and I'll be gracious on whom be gracious, and compassion on whom I will have compassion. Which I find very interesting that in response to Moses' request to show God's glory, God focuses attention on these characteristics as a display of His splendor, His goodness, His grace, His compassion. Well, the next morning, God has Moses... Uh, behind a, a rock and then he manifests his presence by passing by Moses and it is then we read in Exodus 34 verse 5 it says Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed Yahweh Yahweh a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity transgression and sin Yet he will be by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. It's really an amazing statement, again, given by God himself. It's his autobiographical summary of a man who had asked to see his majesty and splendor. And notice the first thing he declares about himself is what? He's a God of compassion. He is compassionate. It's a Hebrew word, which 
uh, has the idea of showing tender mercy, uh, pitying one in a helpless condition. And what's interesting is when that word is used in the singular form, it's actually a reference to the womb. It's an interesting connection, showing the depth of affection and tenderness that compassion is, God's compassion. Because just as the, a, a mother who has a, a child within her womb has this tender affection and mercy for this helpless little baby growing within her, so is God's compassion toward us. God then says He is gracious, a word we get the name Hannah from. It's to, to show kindness, to be generous, to grant someone favor. And particularly we need to remember to grant someone favor who doesn't deserve it. It's definitely the case with the Lord. It's to be kind to someone who has not earned that kindness. And God then adds to compassionate and gracious. He says he's slow to anger. Just I love this expression. It's literally long of nostrils. That's the literal expression. Because in the Hebrew mindset, the uh, different emotions were connected to different parts of the body. To obey was the idea connected to hearing. Or when talking about uh, compassion had a connection as well to the bowels. And here, uh, nostrils is because the uh, anger was connected to the nose. Now, why do you think they'd make that connection? What is it? Sometimes when you're angry, you right? Then you're ready to pop. I mean, that's the, that's the connection point. So if you are long of nostrils, it's not talking about a Pinocchio complex here, but... If you're long of nostrils, that means that you can take in a long breath before you respond. That's the idea. Being slow to anger is being long of nostrils, long of nose. And that is God. Sin does indeed provoke God to anger, but He takes time before responding. He doesn't just react. He's patient. And I think about this a lot with, with Jesus when He was on the earth and how He must have restrained Himself all the sin that took place around him and against him. And yet he did not call down lightning from heaven. Amazing patience. You know, and that's what frustrated Jonah. God's slowness to anger is what brought Jonah to anger. God says next in Exodus 34 that he is full of loving kindness. Another rich word. It means to be um, rich in loyal love and care. So rich, in fact, that God repeats it in verse 7 where he says he keeps loving kindness for thousands, speaking of thousands of generations, and His mercy and His loving kindness and His patience and His grace lead to another attribute that God mentions here, that He forgives, that He forgives iniquity. And He uses three words for sin here, iniquity, wickedness, and sin, three different words in Hebrew, I think in order to emphasize the point, God will forgive any sin. Finally, God says his compassion and grace, his patience, his love doesn't mean that he winks an eye at sin. It doesn't mean that he ignores it, but that he is a just God and that he will punish the guilty. It's quite a description here. And as you march through the Old Testament, you will find these words spoken about God very often, many times. We see references references to them. Nehemiah 9.17, as the people were confessing their sin to God, They declared this, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Or David, when again, one of the times he was on the run and being hunted, he said in Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Yahweh, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And again, in Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. 
He is good to all and His mercies are over all His works. And there's many, many, many other passages that repeat the same refrain. And Jonah knew his Bible. And Jonah knew who God was. And Jonah knew that God was gracious and compassionate. And so Jonah knew, if I go tell these people, you know, God's sending me because He wants them to change. And I don't want Him to change. Because I know God is a kind and merciful God. And so going back to Jonah, he quotes several of these attributes from Exodus 34. But instead of mentioning forgiveness and justice, he talks about at the end, he says, God is one who relents concerning calamity. That's a repetition of what was said that God did in Jonah 3.10. It's the same phrase given there. It's also the same phrase given by a fellow prophet, Joel, in Joel 2.13, where he said, Now return to Yahweh your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. There's Exodus 34. And then Joel says, who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And Jonah knew this. Jonah knew God was not trigger happy, that he was itching to judge. He knew all these scriptures. He knew God's compassion. He knew these were not hollow words. In fact, Jonah had experienced God's compassion in his own life, had he not? When we first found Jonah back in 2 Kings 14... God had sent him to the wicked king Jeroboam II in order to proclaim not a message of judgment, as we would have thought, but God showed his compassion and kindness there by giving Jonah a message of blessing that Israel would expand her borders. And then Jonah experienced God's compassion personally. We see that in this story, don't we? That God showed Jonah great mercy and kindness, and that despite the fact that Jonah had rebelled and ran the other way, got on a ship so he could get away as far away from God as possible and obeying Him, even though he was brazenly rebellion in the face of God, and for a prophet, no less. Other prophets who decided not to obey the Lord suffered some pretty serious consequences. There was one in 1 Kings 13 who disobeyed the Lord and then went out and he was attacked and killed by a lion. But for Jonah, God let him get to that ship, and He let him get on that ship. And then when the sailors threw Jonah overboard, he didn't drown, did he? God sent this fish to swallow him. Now, God could have let him sink, right? And I was thinking, well, he should have, especially what we learn about him now, how how self-righteous and racist he was. But though Jonah was unwilling to show mercy to the Ninevites, God showed mercy to him. And we read in 2.2 that while Jonah was sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean, that he cried out to God. It says in verse 2, I cried out in my distress to Yahweh, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol, and you heard my voice. Or in 2.6, Jonah declared, You brought me up from the pit, Yahweh my God. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, Salvation is from Yahweh, is from the Lord. See, Jonah experienced God's compassion firsthand, didn't he? And not only once, but twice. Because we read here in chapter 4, when Jonah complained bitterly, right? And he stomps out of Nineveh and he, he goes off to pout. How did God show him mercy there? While he was sitting in the heat, you know, right? And all over. God sent a plant to him. We, we don't know what kind of plant. There's a lot of theories. Some say it's a castor oil plant. Others a vine, ivy. Popular theories that it was a gourd, you know, a squash type of plant because it has very large leaves. We don't know for sure, but <clears throat> why did God provide this plant? What did He send it for? 
It grew up quickly. Looking at 4.6, it says God's purpose in growing this plant. The New American Standard says it was to deliver Jonah from his discomfort. NIV says to ease his discomfort. The ESV says to save him from his discomfort. It's important to note something here, though, from the Hebrew text. That word for deliver, more common word is Yesha, or where do we get Yeshua from? Savior. But the author didn't use that word. He used a, a synonym, and the form of it he used was Lehetzil, which means to deliver, to save. It's a, it's a synonym. But this choice is interesting because there's another word in Hebrew that sounds very similar, Lehetzil, which means to shade. I think there's a wordplay going on here. It would appear that God is showing compassion to Jonah by providing some relief from the heat of the sun, but actually God's compassion is going much deeper than that. You see, the author did not say to shade Jonah, but to save Jonah. Okay, I'm not talking about salvation here, but something else. Because he says here that word, that word for discomfort is the same word we've encountered several times in the book of Jonah. It's a word that has been translated in Jonah as evil, wickedness, calamity, Discomfort, displeasing. Better translation here is not to ease his discomfort, but to save him from his evil. See, God's more interested than rescuing Jonah's body from the heat of the sun. God is after rescuing Jonah's heart from the heat of his anger and his self-righteousness. Because again, the Lord could have let Jonah sit there, right? You know, Jonah, I gave you one shot... You blew it. Now you're out here pouting and sulking because I didn't judge these people. Fine. (laughs) I'm done with you. You're so self-righteous and hateful. You know, he could have judged this racist prophet. But instead, God shows compassion upon Jonah by bringing circumstances in his life to save him from his evil. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. God showed compassion to Jonah. And he showed it not only to Jonah, but who else do we see God showing his compassion to in this story? Back in chapter 1. Sailors, right? The sailors. Because think about it. We have to ask the question, did God send the storm on account of Jonah? Was it for him or for them? Because God could have dealt with Jonah and gotten his attention in any manner of ways. Jonah had a 60-mile trek from uh, his hometown to Joppa, right? God could have brought some snakes along or earthquakes or a bear or a lion like the case of the other prophet or some robbers. But God waits. He waits until Jonah boards that ship and he waits until that ship leaves port. And again, even on the ship, God could have dealt with Jonah in any number of ways. But he brings this storm. And what is it that the storm causes the sailors to do? Oh, just another little rocky, you know, rocky waters. Yeah, we experience this all the time. That, was that their response? No, it says they feared a great fear. And they were crying out to any God who would listen. And even the captain, right, was telling Jonah, you need to cry out too. We gotta, somebody's mad at us. We got we to gotta talk to him and ask him to, to stop. They were afraid. The lot's cast. The lot falls on Jonah. The sailors find out that Jonah was on the run from Yahweh. And he says, Yahweh is, by the way, the God who made the sky, the earth, and the sea. And then they're like, whoa. And then after they throw Jonah into the sea and the, sto- the, the storm stops. Reminds me of another time, doesn't it? Sea of Galilee, disciples. 
You remember how they responded when Jesus calmed the sea with a word? Wow. Right? That's how these guys responded. Because now they realize. Remember the disciples said, who is this who commands the sea? Sailors, the same thing. And they knew who it was because they knew it was Yahweh. They'd come face to face with the one true God. In Jonah 1.16, it says that they feared Yahweh greatly. Now they didn't fear the storm. They feared Him. And it wasn't a fear of death. It was a fear of reverence and honor. They turned to Yahweh in faith. Now some dismiss this as, oh, these are just these pagan idol worshipers. And, you know, they'll just, they'll throw a sacrifice at any God they think that comes along. But notice something here. Yahweh's, God's personal name Yahweh is given twice here. That is who they are sacrificing to. They didn't say Jonah's God or the God of Israel or the God of the sea, but Yahweh. And notice too, it says that they feared him. That's a common term in the Old Testament to describe someone who worships God. The sailors' fear of death, again, had become a fear of worship and reverence. And notice, too, that they offered not just a sacrifice, but also that they vowed vows. They weren't going through some religious exercise here. They weren't adding Yahweh to their pantheon of gods. They realized and recognized that Yahweh is God. And at that moment, He was their God. God's compassion led Jonah to them so that Jonah would lead them to Him, despite the fact Jonah wasn't even trying in fact remember when god when when the uh, the captain said to call on god he didn't he didn't want to talk to god again god's compassion wasn't just limited to jonah it wasn't just limited to these sailors we also see it chapter three don't we the ninevites the ninevites god again he could have let those people go on in their idol worship of you know fish gods and fish goddesses and and all the things they were in their violence their wickedness their evil god could have let them go on in that and die in hopelessness and despair and face an eternity of torment and they were indeed in a hopeless condition in fact it's um, interesting i mentioned last week the uh, they found the, the ancient city of nineveh at least the one that existed about 70 years after Jonah. And in, that, in the archaeological digs there, they found a library. It's uh, named the Library of Ashurbanipal. It was, he's the last ruler of Assyria. And in that library were over 2,000 tablets. And one of the tablets was the Epic of Gilgamesh. Some of you may have heard of. Another was the Enuma Elise creation story, a very famous creation account from the ancient Near Eastern times. And among those tablets, there was a prayer that was found. It's entitled, A Prayer to Every God. I want to read a few lines from that prayer to you, just to show you from their own lips the state, their spiritual condition, and what they were going through. This person writes in this prayer, May the God who is not known be quieted towards me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted towards me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted towards me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted towards me. O God whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are great. Many are my sins. O goddess whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. The transgressions which I have committed, indeed I do not know. The sin which I have done, indeed I do not know. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. Although I'm constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When they weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I'm troubled. I'm overwhelmed. I cannot see. That's pretty despairing, isn't it? Prayer goes on and on like that. It's much longer. 
But this person says, I've done something wrong, but I don't know what to do about it. I don't know who to talk to about it. I don't know who to confess to about it. Somebody's mad and I cry out and I hear nothing. You can see why God says at the very end of Jonah that they didn't know their right hand from their left. And he wasn't speaking about the fact that they were too young to understand things. He was talking about they were spiritually lost. Paul said in Ephesians 2.12 about the Gentiles, remember when we were there quite a while back, and he said that they were without hope and without God in the world. That's where these Ninevites were at. And God looked at them in their their lost state, and He had mercy on them. And He took them by the hand, showed them compassion because He showed them Himself. And He sent this reluctant, wicked prophet and used even him to draw them to Himself. Like the sailors, they too now worshipped God. It's amazing to think about. Like the sailors, they leave port as these pagan idol worshipers, they come back as children of God. Or one day in Nineveh, they all go out, run, go on with their normal lives. This prophet shows up, God brings conviction, and in a moment, they've turned from their, their state of destruction and moving that direction to now believing and trusting in God. God's compassion is amazing. Over and over in the story, we don't see a God who's cruel and vengeful. We see one who's full of compassion for the lost. So when people say, how could God let this happen? Doesn't He care? Doesn't He see? You've got to remember the question God asks Jonah and us at the end of this book when He says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, more than 120,000 people? That's God's heart right there. That's His heart. And when God became a man, walked upon the earth... Did we not see the heart of God and His great compassion? How many times was Jesus moved emotionally, literally, within His own being at the trials and struggles? I remember the man with leprosy. That story always affected me in Mark 1 where he came and he was laid out before Jesus. A man in misery, an outcast, rejected. Who knows how long? He was in that condition. And not only did Jesus heal him, but do you remember what else he did? He reached down, didn't he? And he touched him. He didn't do this. He touched the untouchable. An act of great mercy and kindness. Or I think about the Samaritan woman at the well, living in sin in John 4. You think Jonah would have talked to her? But Jesus did. The distraught widow who lost her only son in Luke 7. Jesus sees the funeral procession and then He looks upon her tear-stained face and moved with compassion. He raises her son from the dead and then it says He handed her son back to her. The blind men in Matthew 20, remember they were crying out to Jesus for mercy and all the people, the crowd were saying, Hey, shut up! But Jesus stopped and says he was moved with compassion for these poor men and he healed them. Or Matthew 9, Jesus is standing before Jerusalem and he was feeling, it says he was moved with great compassion because he saw them as lost and distressed souls like sheep without a shepherd, right? And then in Matthew 23, standing before Jerusalem again, he laments and he says, how I I long to gather you as chicks, but you wouldn't have me. 
You know, when I die, I don't expect to find God laughing. I expect to find Him weeping. Weeping over a sinful humanity that has turned from such a compassionate God. His compassion is deep, isn't it? His compassion is wide. A great hymn from Frederick Faber who said the... He uh, quotes, there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. And I thought about that. Do you you know how wide God's mercy is? It stretches from Jesus' right hand to his left. Because in that act that we celebrated and remembered earlier, he gave us the only way of escape. The only way of escape from the awful path that we were on, just like those Ninevites, hopeless and despairing on their way to destruction. God, through His Son, offers a way of escape from an eternal judgment and separation from God in hell, a judgment we deserve for our rebellion against a holy God. But Jesus paid the debt, and He paid the debt that He didn't owe, did He? Who owed the debt? We do. We're the ones who sinned. We're the ones who've turned against a gracious and holy and just God. And yet Jesus stood in our place and He made a way. He made a way for you to be here this morning. He made a way for you to hear the message of the gospel. He brought someone in your life, maybe many people in your life. That was my case. We, we have Bibles. There are places that don't even have these to proclaim the message of His good news. That's God's compassion. And ultimately showing it through His Son. And again, through His Son is the only way of escape. Through His Son is the only way that we can be forgiven. Through His Son is the only means of having our guilt removed and being right with God. Right? He's the only way. One man said, Grace flows from God not on those who attempt to earn it, but on those who confess their need for it. And that's what you must do. Confess your sins to God, that you're a sinner in need of His grace and express a genuine desire to turn to Him in faith and turn from your sin. The Bible says that any who repent and believe genuinely that He will grant them eternal life, that He will wash away their sin. You will have the joy of being right with God. But that doesn't mean an end to all the difficulties and trials and struggles, right? At least not yet. But know this, brothers and sisters, that God's compassion for you flows from an infinitely deep well. Amen? It doesn't end. There's no bottom to it. It's a well that never runs dry. So take your burdens to Him. Cast them before Him. Lay them at His feet. Know that He does care. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you... Now, was that only talking about at salvation? Was He speaking only to unbelievers there? That was a promise forever. He'll give us rest not only at that moment. He promises rest forever. Now, He may let the trial remain for His good purposes, but don't mistake that for the fact that He doesn't love you because He does. Be encouraged, saint. The book of Jonah reminds us that God does care, that He is full of compassion And God not only wants us to see His compassion from this book, He also wants us to show it. He makes that second point clear from what He reveals about Jonah's response here in chapter 4. Now, Jonah may be the author of this book, 
We don't know for sure. The details that we see in chapter 2 about his prayer indicate maybe he was the one that wrote it. I hope so. I really do, because that would show that he learned his lesson, right? It's a lesson that had to do with his attitude towards God's compassion. For his already, We already talked about it. He was livid about how God had delivered the Ninevites, how he had kept them from destruction. In fact, he was so angry. Remember what he said in verse 3? He was so angry he wanted to die. Now that's angry. In fact, uh, he offers in chapter 4 a much different prayer than the one he offered in chapter 2, doesn't he? Chapter 2, right? He had been drowning in the sea. And when you compare these two prayers, there's so much irony within them. Because right back in chapter 2, he was adamant about wanting to live, right? Now he's adamant about wanting to die. Back in chapter 2, he cried out for God's mercy, for God to show mercy upon him. And yet, with the Ninevites, he didn't want God to show mercy. And so now he was mad that God did show mercy on them. Jonah's first prayer in chapter 2 was given in joyful thanksgiving. This second prayer is given in angry complaint. And there's another irony. That statement in verse 3 uh, where he says, Take my life from me, that's the exact same statement that Elijah made when he was discouraged in 1 Kings 19. You remember that story? This came right after uh, the whole account with the prophets of Baal. And there was, uh, uh, you know, this big showdown and the, the sacrifice and God burned up the offering from Elijah, but not the one from Baal. All the prophets of Baal were killed. But the problem was the people didn't turn. As a result of that, Ahab and Jezebel were still on the throne. And Elijah saw that. And so he went out into the desert and he gave these same words to God. He sat under a bush or something and he said, take my life from me. But see, there's a, a lot of irony between these two prophets. For Elijah wanted to die because the people did not respond. Jonah wanted to die because they did. Verse Ford, God asked the question, do you have good reason to be angry? Again, God's mercy and kindness. He could have lit Jonah up right there, but instead he asked him a question to try to reach him. Just like Nathan the prophet with David. But you know, this prophet had a horrible self-righteous lack of love for others. In fact, we see that self-righteousness a little bit back in his prayer in chapter 2. If you look at verse 8, Jonah said in his prayer at the end, those who regard vain idols, and he's probably talking about the sailors, they forsook their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Some self-focus there, isn't there? Same thing we see in chapter 4, where he says, is this not what I said while I was still in my own land? But God's question in verse 4, did, did Jonah reply to that, by the way? What does he do? He doesn't answer God. He walks away. Verse 5 says he went out of the city, sat down to pout. Apparently what, what the situation was, you know, Nineveh was west of, or Israel was on the west of Nineveh. And so probably when Jonah arrived at Nineveh, he was arrived on the western side and he started walking through town. And that first day he's proclaiming the message, you know, in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. He sees how the Ninevites are responding in faith and trust in God. And then he realizes God's not going to judge these people. So he kept right on walking out of town and sat out on the, on the east of the town. Sets up this shanty because it's a little warm out there. Sets up a little shelter for him. Self, 
so he can sit there. And then it says, so he could sit there and see what would happen in the city. What do you think it was Jonah was hoping would happen? He's saying, you know what? Maybe this repentance isn't real. Maybe they'll actually go back to their old ways and maybe, (laughs) maybe God will judge them. Why else would he sit there and watch? Again, the, the irony here. Jonah goes and sits down in arrogance and pride, hoping for the city to be destroyed. You remember the pagan king inside of the city? He rose up in humility, hoping for the city to be delivered. And the thing is, too, we see here by Jonah walking away in verse 4, he could care less what God had to say, but that pagan king in Nineveh, he was all ears. He wanted to know what God had to say. Again, this story is so much irony. Jonah wanted no part of God's mercy at all. Just incredible because he hated these people who were different from him. I mean, there's a whole sermon here on the power and evil of racism just from Jonah's example. His heart was in an awful place. If you go back to Jonah 4, verse 1, again, that phrase, it says it greatly displeased Jonah. I don't think the translation here really does justice to what's in the Hebrew here because the phrase literally reads, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. It's that same word evil we've been seeing all over the place in Jonah here. It's been translated as wickedness, calamity, discomfort, displeasure. It's got this, it's this idea of something bad that either a person does or that happens to a person. And here, amazingly enough, Jonah is accusing God of committing wrong. It isn't just that he was upset about it. It says that in the next phrase, he was angry. That first line is saying, what Jonah saw, it was a great evil to him. It was a wrong that had been committed. This word evil, ra'ah, in the Hebrew, again, it, we started the story with that word. You remember? Because God says in chapter 1, verse 2, when he commissioned Jonah, he says the, the wickedness, that is the ra'ah, the evil of the Ninevites had come up before him. And so he sends Jonah with a message of ra'ah, a message of calamity that's going to happen to the people of Nineveh, as we read in 3.10. But what did the Ninevites do? They turned from their ra'ah, from their wickedness, it says in, excuse me, in 3.8. And so God relented from his ra'ah. And then in 4.1, we see Jonah's response. He saw God's action as ra'ah. And so in verse 6 of chapter 4, it says that God brings his plant to deliver Jonah, to save him from his ra'ah, his evil, his attitude, his self-righteous heart. You see how this word really ties the whole story together? Jonah's where Nineveh was. He is the one in need of being delivered from his evil. We begin with the Ninevites being evil, needing to turn. We end with Jonah. In fact, one commentator said the greatest evil in the book is Jonah. Martin Luther said Jonah was worse than the idolatrous heathen, for he sought to withhold heaven from them. And so this whole circumstance of the plant that God brings along is meant to be intended to be an object lesson for Jonah to deliver him from his sinful pride, his self-righteous heart, his racist attitudes. But, you know, it says in verse, um, what is it, 6, that Jonah was very happy about the plant. In fact, literally says he rejoiced a great rejoicing. He was ecstatic, elated for this shade that had now come over him. 
But then what does God do? Brings a worm or a, a grub, a weevil, something that attacks the plant, and within a day it's dead, withers up. And then not only does God remove the plant, he also brings this uh, scorching eastern wind. It's still common in the ancient Near East. Uh, these winds can, are like furnace blasts. It can be over 110 degrees, and it was probably strong enough that it blew Jonah's shelter over because it says he was burning from the heat. His head was burning. God responds to Jonah's burning anger by bringing burning heat. And in verse 8, Jonah's a bit miserable, probably on the verge of heat stroke. It says there he's about ready to faint, and he mutters, probably to himself, perhaps to God, he mutters that he wants to die. And so God approaches him again in verse 8. Just kind of like the mirrors uh, chapter 1 and 2, doesn't it? God approached him, Jonah ignored him. God comes back, says the same thing. Are you ready to listen now? see the same thing here in chapter 4, don't we? Because he asks him the same question. Do you have a reason to be angry? Jonah, why, yes, I do. I have a good reason to be angry. I miss my plant. (laughs) Now Jonah cares about something, right? He refused to go to Nineveh. But he could care because he didn't care if the people there perished. He refused to call on God in the ship because he didn't care if the sailors perished. But now that his plant is dead, he gets upset because his plant is perished. Everyone else in the story is concerned about people, right? The sailors were concerned about themselves, the people of Nineveh, God. But Jonah was only concerned about a plant. And why was that? Why did he have this affection for the plant? He probably gave it a name even, too, I imagine. Gordo. Thanks for laughing. I just thought of that one. Um, Anyway, Gordo dies. Now he's bothered by it, right? Why? Plants don't usually make pets, do they? No, it's because of what this plant was doing for him. Because what he was getting out of this vegetation. Jonah is like many... Of those in the parables that Jesus gave, he's the Pharisee in the temple in Luke 18 who was looking with disdain at the tax gatherer next to him. He says, I'm glad I'm not like this guy over here. I give my offerings and tithes. I'm a great guy. That's Jonah. Jonah's the servant in Matthew 18. Remember the one who was forgiven this uh, really unforgivable debt? It was unpayable. It was huge and massive. And, and the master forgives that servant. And then he goes out and beats a fellow servant. For the money that he owed him, that's Jonah. Jonah's the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember those two who walked by the man who was left for dead after being beaten by robbers? Jonah's the laborer in the field in Matthew 20 who worked a whole day for a fair wage and then was angry with the, the, uh, the owner for giving the same amount of money to somebody who worked less. Jonah's the older brother of the prodigal son who despised his father for showing mercy on his brother. So God says to him, you you cared about this temporary plant, a plant that you didn't put the seed there, you didn't nurture it, you didn't cause it to grow, but it met your needs, so you cared about it. Should I not care about this massive city of more than 120,000 people who are lost 
and headed for eternal destruction. People whom I made in my image. And then the story ends. It ends with that question. Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? Wait a minute. What did Jonah say? What did he do? Did, did he repent? Did he turn, learn his lesson? Did he? What happened? Now we see the purpose of this amazing little book. For the story has been building up to this last verse, to that very question. Everything that has happened, everything that the author has written has led us down a path and he set us up. He set us up. No response is given to God's question because the question isn't aimed at Jonah. Ultimately, it's aimed at us. The readers of this story, this story wasn't recorded so that we would know how Jonah answers, but how we answer. Masterfully written, the author flipped it on us. Because he intends for the reader, he intends for you to evaluate your own heart. God's saying here to us, I have compassion for lost souls. How about you? Luke 6, 36, Jesus said, be merciful for your heavenly father is merciful. God has shown you mercy so that you would show others mercy. And you know, as we read through this book, especially in chapter 4, and we can get into bashing this prophet. He, and we should. He was a bad guy. This was bad. His whole attitude here was, was ra'ah. was evil. But you know, we sometimes get so caught up in criticizing him and focusing our attention on him, we don't look at ourselves. It's kind of like the attitude, you know, I'm glad my husband's here to hear this sermon, or glad my wife's here to hear this. Instead of, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm hearing this. We need to look at ourselves. For, you know, when, when I treat someone else with contempt because they are different than me, I am like Jonah. When I turn a blind eye to the many needs around me, I'm like Jonah. When I don't reach out to others with the kindness of God, I, I am like this prophet. When I fail to tell others the gospel, when given the opportunity, I am Jonah. When I don't pray for the lost to come to Christ, I'm like Jonah. When I wish God's judgment on others, I am Jonah. When I dislike someone to the point of even not caring whether they go to heaven or hell, I am Jonah. You know, because not only were Jonah and Israel called to be a light to the world, so too... Are we, are we not, brothers and sisters? Charles Feinberg said this, Are we more content to remain with the gourds, the comforts of home, than to see the message of Christ go out to the ends of the earth to both Jew and Gentile? We may not, as Jonah did, argue with God for His goodness and mercy and love to the ignorant souls lost in sin, but if we don't make it possible for them to hear of His grace and power to save to the uttermost, the result is the same as far as they are concerned. So the question for us to think about as we leave today, for the sake of Jesus, beloved, should we not have compassion on the 120,000? Let's pray. Oh Lord, what an amazing book. Uh, Lord, I... 
Now, I've been convicted greatly this week in the many ways that I do not show the care and concern and compassion as you do for others. I pray, God, that you would work on our hearts, that, Lord, you would move in us. I pray especially, Lord, for those who may be part of the 120,000, Father, who don't know you. But, Father, I pray that they would see through this story your wonderful compassion, your willingness to forgive, your desire to forgive. If they would but turn in faith and trust in you and turn from their sin and place their trust in Jesus who died for them. I pray, God, you would move in their hearts. I pray you would move, Lord, and we whom you've shown your grace upon, that you have forgiven, that, Lord, you would move us to be, Lord, those who care about the lost, who care about one another. God, encourage us that, Lord, it's hard to see the things we see in life, to experience the tragedies and the struggles. Lord, it's hard at times to see your compassion in that. And I pray you would help us, God. Remind us of Jonah's story. Remind us of Lord Jesus and all the ways that he showed your compassion. I pray, God, that you would grant us that conviction, that you do care. Lord, that we may be encouraged in those dark hours in our lives. And God, make us those, Lord, who respond to this question that you have asked us, that we would have compassion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.